So after a few weeks uh, looking through and thinking about the Advent and Christmas and the New Year, last week we looked at the Great Commission. I'm excited to be back in the book of James to see what wisdom God has for us there. Um, Before we do that, let's pray together. Dear Father, we now ask that from the reading and the preaching of your word, you would draw us to yourself, that you would draw our eyes to Christ, who is crucified and risen from the dead. Nourish our hearts by your word. Cause us to realize we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. We pray this in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. So we are in James chapter 3, verses 13 to 18 this morning. You can turn there in your Bibles. James chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. For better or for worse, at Christmas time, our minds, our, the minds of our culture has turned to our wants. And then at New Year's, we get to thinking about our needs. Right? We think about what we want at Christmas, and then when it comes to the New Year, we think about our needs. And so we make resolutions to better ourselves, right? And perhaps some of you have made those resolutions. You've recognized a need in your life, and so you want to, to change something. You want to be healthier. You want to be more responsible. You want to grow in certain areas of knowledge. You want to get a promotion at your, your job. And I hope that as you've thought about those needs, you have thought about your spiritual need and perhaps made some goals for your own spiritual life. What is it that you want to in, in what areas do you want to grow spiritually in the new year? What goals do you have for your family spiritually? How do you want to lead your family into holiness, into Christ's likeness, into loving and knowing Christ more? And really, I, I could have chosen any text. I mean, I didn't choose this text for today. Any text I preach on would reveal to us our great need of Christ in the gospel. Our, our great need of knowing Him more, of loving Him more, of serving Him more. The Scriptures are so rich with the truths about who God is and about what we need. No matter what Scripture I preached from this morning, we would find a worthy goal. And I want you to consider from our text this morning this goal of growing in the wisdom of God for the new year. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so to truly be wise is to to know who God is and to have a reverential fear of who He is. To, To know Him, to love Him, to serve Him more. In our passage this morning, James contrasts the character and the fruit of two different kinds of wisdom. One wisdom is from above, and it results in peace and righteousness. The other wisdom is from the devil, and it results in disorder and all kinds of evil. And it is one's life which reveals the kind of wisdom one possesses. So look at, look at our passage with me, James three thirteen to 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. 
But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. One of James's big concerns really throughout the book is that of unity, and we see that come really clear here and in the beginning of chapter 4. Unity, in particular unity within the church, within the local body of believers. This is related to earlier chapter 3 and then into chapter 4. And in these verses in particular, James shows how having this godly wisdom is vital for our unity as a church. And he shows us that if we have ungodly wisdom, it will result in our death, our destruction, division, every kind of evil. Look at verse 13. James invites those who think they are wise and understanding to step forward to be examined. It appears that he has some, perhaps some knowledge of things going on in churches that he's addressing, some problems churches are facing. There are some who claim superior wisdom and understanding and are causing divisions within the church. If you're really wise and understanding, James says, you will show it by your lifestyle. You will show it by doing good deeds in the humility of wisdom. It's unclear if James is addressing people who are putting themselves up as leaders or if there are these are members of the church, but regardless, it applies to each group. James wants his readers, he wants church leaders, church members, his readers, to examine their own hearts and lives and discover which kind of wisdom they possess. Which kind of wisdom characterizes your life? Which kind of wisdom do you possess? To answer that question, we first have to ask, well, how can I tell the difference between the two? Between these two kinds of wisdom. Then, seeing the differences, we can begin to examine our own lives, our own hearts, to see what kind of wisdom we possess. So as we contrast these two different kinds of wisdom, you should be asking yourself all along, is that me? Does that characterize me? Does that point to my life? Which kind of wisdom describes me and we'll see the contrast in two ways first we'll see this contrast in the pattern of your life and we'll see the contrast secondly in the fruit you produce we'll see it in the pattern of your life and in the fruit you produce so first notice that the wisdom you possess is evident in the pattern of your life the wisdom you possess is evident in the pattern of your life. This is a recurring theme throughout James in several different topics, several different issues. We see this. The truth about a person, who a person is, who a person is in their heart is made visible by their actions. So your speech reveals what is in your heart. Actions flow from the spring of one's heart. If you claim to have faith, then you will have certain works that evidence that faith. If you claim to have wisdom, 
your life also will back it up. Ungodly wisdom manifests itself in a life of pride and selfishness. Notice this contrast. First, ungodly wisdom manifests itself in a life full of pride and selfishness. So James uses two words to show what ungodly wisdom looks like. If you are full of bitter envy and selfish ambition, then you can't lie and say that you possess wisdom because your life reveals something else. Bitter envy refers to something, you wanting something so bad, you're willing to do whatever it takes to get it. And particularly in this context, uh, we could think of possessions, but also think about um, one's getting one's own way. You want your way so bad, you're filled with this bitter envy that you want what you want. Selfish ambition is related closely. Really, James uses them, uh, these two terms uh, which overlap one another. Selfish ambition refers to, uh, again, I want what I want, and it doesn't matter who I step on to get where I want to get. I want to advance myself, and so it doesn't matter if anyone else is pushed down or pushed aside as long as I can get what I want. Ambition itself isn't necessarily a bad thing. There is such a thing as godly ambition. But James is referring to a sort of selfish, grabbing all that you can get ambition. Whatever it takes. And then he uses three words to describe this ungodly wisdom. Notice the crescendo. He gets more serious with each description. It is earthly. So its origin is not from heaven. It is from the earth. It is man's wisdom, not God's wisdom. It is unspiritual. He takes it a step further. So now it doesn't have to do with the spirit. It is fleshly wisdom. It's unspiritual. And then he uses the really harsh language. It is demonic. Sometimes you have to use harsh language to get across your point. This is what James wants them to see. See, we might think earthly, unspiritual. Okay, it's kind of neutral then. It's not so bad. But then when he uses the term demonic, we see what this really is. And so Jesus uses harsh language sometimes when he wants to get his point across about the seriousness of sin, about the seriousness of our rebellion against God. And so when he is speaking with Peter and Peter tells him, you're not going to die. I will lay down my life before you die. Jesus replies to him, get behind me, Satan. Harsh language. Peter, do you recognize what you're saying? This... I have come to give my life, and you're going to stand in the way of that? That's the devil talking. James wants us to see just how ugly, just how sinful, just how rebellious, ungodly wisdom is, and so he uses this word demonic. What we need to recognize is selfishness and bitter envy are demonic. See, we tend to think of our sin as pretty bad. We can, you know, whitewash it and make our sin not that bad. Yeah, we sin. Yeah, I disobey my parents. I know that's a sin, but you know, every kid does it, right? Yes, I, I lied here, or I, I wasn't quite honest with the money with my business. I wasn't quite honest with my boss. We have a tendency to 
not think too seriously about our sin. But when, when James calls this selfishness demonic, we are called out on our sin. Every sin that we commit, every selfishness is demonic. When we sin, we are imitating the father of lies, the devil himself. This un- ungodly wisdom is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. To summarize it, we could say that ungodly wisdom is prideful and selfish. Ungodly wisdom manifests itself in a life of pride and selfishness. And so Paul, who also hits on these themes in Philippians 2.3, says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Or in Philippians or in Galatians chapter five, verses nineteen to twenty-one, the acts of the flesh are obvious. Now think about this again in the seriousness of our sin. The acts of the flesh are obvious: sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition. Divisions, factions, and envy. Drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Ungodly wisdom manifests itself in a life of pride and selfishness. But the reverse of that is godly wisdom, which manifests itself in a life of humility and selflessness. Godly wisdom manifests itself in a life of humility and selflessness. Perhaps an overall quality in one's life that wisdom produces is this humility, this meekness. You see what James says at the beginning, let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness, in the meekness, in the humility of wisdom. Humility comes from knowing who God is and knowing who you are. Humility comes from knowing the greatness and the power and the holiness, the superiority, the majesty of God, and knowing the sinfulness of your own self. He describes this wisdom by eight terms. First of all, preeminently, he says it is pure, it is holy, it's without spot or blemish. And then it is peace-loving. So this this sort of wisdom promotes peace and unity rather than promoting division. And of all the ways I can think about that this lacks in churches that I've been a part of in the past, the word gossip comes to mind. Such a small thing and yet such damage gossip can do. It is not peace-promoting. Another way that division is sowed in the church, peace is disturbed, are by questions which lead to factions and divisions. So often the question can begin like, well, you know, I didn't really I don't really like this. What do you think about this? What do you think about this? And it's it begins with a seemingly insignificant question, but really what's going on there is a, a building of coalition, 
a building of a faction, a building of a division. And what you're doing there is not promoting peace and unity. You are promoting division. But it's considerate. It's gentle. So wisdom from God doesn't just tell the truth no matter how it makes someone feel. You often hear that. After someone has been harsh with someone, if they're called out on it, and they say, well, it's true. I'm just, I'm just stating the, the truth. You can tell the truth and yet be full of ungodly wisdom. Because godly wisdom is considerate. It's submissive, full of mercy. It's compassionate towards those who are weak, to those who are hurting. It's full of mercy and good fruit. It is impartial. It's reasonable. You can reason with godly wisdom. And it's sincere. It's genuine in its motives. Related to this godly wisdom, Paul says of the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 22-23. This is just after he, would, he had talked about the, the works of the flesh. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things... There is no law. It's pretty interesting how Paul and James, James talking about wisdom, Paul talking about the Spirit, how parallel these verses seem to be. Well, which of these two alternatives characterize your life? Having seen the descriptions, having seen what these wisdoms look like, Which of these two alternatives characterizes your life? Pride and selfishness or humility and selflessness? James, with James's particular concern of church unity, perhaps that's the first place we ought to begin thinking about our application. This applies to leaders and members as we are working towards unity within the body of Christ. So consider what this will mean for our church life. Ways... Ungodly wisdom might affect our church life. Perhaps you have a a, a pet ministry. And so there's a ministry that you are particularly excited about. And it really gets you excited because you're you're passionate about that certain ministry. Have you ever seen times where someone's passion for ministry overcame their love for other believers in the church? They were so committed to that ministry that if someone wasn't a part of that ministry, then it calls them to divide from one another. You have those who are in this part of the ministry and those who are are outside. See how that can create divisions. Now, we should absolutely, there are ministries we should be passionate about, right? Having uh, been a part of having adopted two children, I am passionate about caring for orphans and that we as a church, that we as believers cannot shirk our responsibility to orphans and widows. And you've heard about how how much I desire that we would reflect the community around us with with diversity, not only racial diversity, but also socioeconomic diversity. But what if you begin to, to place those ministry passions over and against your love for one another? Does it not become a problem? Do we not begin to have divisions among ourselves? Or maybe you have a a pet belief by which you judge others. So I'm not talking here about 
foundations of the faith. Areas that we must believe or we are not Christians at all. Right? We have a statement of faith that we abide by. We believe those foundational truths. Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. God is one, existing in three persons for all eternity. There is salvation in no one except for Jesus Christ alone. No one can come to the Father except through Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Right, we believe all those things. But then there become what we call open-hand issues. And we can agree to disagree on those issues. But what happens if you begin to hold one of the open-handed issues with a tight fist? And anyone who doesn't agree with you is outside of your group. We, begin to, we can begin to form factions based on our pet beliefs that really are second or third tier beliefs and not foundational truths. Again, it's not that we can't hold different views or value different ministries. What is the key? It is humility and selflessness. If you can't submit yourself to others on secondary issues you reveal that you have a heart of pride the problem begins when we begin to have different groups or factions judging one another competing with one another the church is not a two-party system it is a one-party family we're not building a coalition we're working to build the body of christ we could even bring, break this out into a larger scale as we expand out the application and think about uh, competing with other churches, which is one of the reasons we pray for other churches regularly because we don't want to be about competing with other churches. We long for the success, for the fruit of those churches who are preaching the gospel faithfully, who are preaching Jesus Christ crucified for sinners and risen from the dead. We don't want to long for their success or for their ministries or for their giftedness. God has made us who we are to be who we are for his glory. Or what, how else we, might we apply this godly wisdom versus ungodly wisdom? What about in your home life? How does this godly wisdom versus ungodly wisdom work out in your family? Perhaps one of the most difficult spheres in which to display humility and selflessness is with those you're closest with, husband and wife and children and parents. Why? Why is that one of the most difficult things? To display humility and selflessness in the family? Because we know each other better than anyone else. We know how sinful our family members are better than anyone else. All the faults, all the sins, all the personality quirks, we know one another well. There could be a tendency for sibling rivalry. One thinking he's better than the other, or each one trying to one-up the other. What would it look like for a brother and sister to lay down their lives for one another? To live selflessly, and in humility with one another. Now, I can challenge you on this because I already failed at that as a child. But what would that look like for families, for husbands and wives, for children, for parents? 
to live selflessly with one another. Do you always have to have your way in your family? Is your way always the best? Churches and homes and communities thrive when its members display the wisdom which comes from God, humbly submitting themselves to one another and working in self-sacrifice to serve one another. So imagine, imagine how a church could thrive if it is made up of humble, selfless servants of Christ. We would try to outdo one another in showing honor. In serving one another, not for the recognition, not so everybody could see how great of servants we were, but we would gladly do it without any recognition at all because we wanted to serve one another for the sake of the other. And the amazing thing about all of this is that this wisdom is ours in Christ. It's not something we have to to strive on our own to get. The pattern of Jesus' life was wisdom through and through from first to last. What characterized Christ's life? Except for humility and selflessness. What characterized his death? Was it not humility? Was it not selflessness when he died on the cross for sinners? See, Paul gives us the same contrast between godly and ungodly wisdom in Philippians 2, 1 through 11. Similarly, he is calling for the mind of selflessness. Don't consider yourself as more important than others. Think more of the needs of others rather than your own needs. He's calling for this mind of humble selflessness which fosters the kind of unity the church needs. And so he says, in your relationship with one another, have this same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father." Christ is the prime example of godly wisdom. But he's not simply the prime example of the kind of wisdom James is talking about. He is also the one who gives us this wisdom. And by the Holy Spirit living within us, God is shaping our hearts and minds to reflect back the godly wisdom of Christ. And the result of this is that the church will be filled with peace and righteousness. That's a part of the second contrast I want you to see between ungodly and godly wisdom. So the wisdom you possess is evident from the pattern of your life. Second, the wisdom you possess is evident in the fruit you produce. So if you want to know what kind of wisdom you have, examine the tracks that you leave behind you. Examine the fruit. Ungodly wisdom produces one thing, and godly wisdom produces something totally opposite. So verse 16, ungodly wisdom results in disorder and every evil thing. Now he says where envy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every evil thing. So he uses these terms again as a kind of a summary of what ungodly wisdom is. 
And the result is disorder. It's disunity. It's division. An example of this would be what Paul is addressing in 1 Corinthians 14. What we have in 1 Corinthians 14 is there's, there is a rivalry between people in the church because they think their spiritual gifts are better than uh, the other spiritual gifts. They prided themselves on the spiritual gift they had and their expression of it. They weren't expressing their spiritual gifts for the building up of the church, but for the building up of their own egos. And to that, Paul says, no, everything must be done in order to build up the body. You've been gifted in these ways to edify, to encourage one another that the church may be built up. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. A small issue becomes a destructive force when big egos are involved. And don't you see that each one of us is in danger of this? How we can take such a small, seemingly insignificant matter or issue, and when we become puffed up, when our egos become inflated, we can be in danger of promoting disorder in every evil thing. Note the destructiveness of what seems like such a small thing coming from selfishness. We could apply James's words about the tongue to selfishness. He says, how huge a forest fire is set, comes from a small member of the body. The tongue is a world of fire. And selfishness has the capacity to destroy, even though it begins as such a small thing. So notice this contrast now between the produce, the product of ungodly and godly wisdom. Ungodly wisdom results in disorder and every evil thing. In verse 18, godly wisdom results in peace and righteousness. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Or Jesus who said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Brothers and sisters, we are called to be peacemakers. And it is when we are peacemakers that we will beautifully express that we are the children of the God of peace. And brothers and sisters of the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. James has this beautiful image of sowing seeds in peace. As we plant seeds in our conversations before and after the service, as we meet one another week in and week out in restaurants, in coffee shops, in homes, as we speak to our family, we have the opportunity to plant seeds in peace. And the Lord promises that peacemakers who sow in peace will reap a harvest of righteousness. Such a stark difference between what ungodly wisdom produces and what godly wisdom produces. So considering your own life then, what does your fruit say about the kind of wisdom you possess? Does division and confusion follow you wherever you go? Are you learning to be a peacemaker? Are you striving for peace, working for peace, planting seeds in peace wherever you go? And one of the biggest issues in churches in the last few decades that I think about when it comes to peacemaking, ungodly wisdom versus godly wisdom, are the so-called worship wars. People lined up on 
each side of the worship wars to get their own preferred style of music. So you have hymnal people on one side who said, we need to only see the, sing the hymns. And then you have the praise music people on the other side who, who are saying, get rid of those old hymns. We don't need those anymore. Some of you, did you go through those worship wars? Were you a part of those worship wars? I see a lot of you smiling. Like maybe you were. Now James maybe wouldn't have too much to say about the content of those discussions. But what he would have a lot to say about would be the tone and the heart, motives and the attitudes of those discussions. It's possible to be right and to be completely wrong. But I remember a few people who made positive impressions on me, even in the midst of those worship wars. I remember one older man saying, yes, he preferred the old hymns. If he had it his way, he would sing the he would love to be able to sing the hymns every single Sunday and to teach them to his children that they might learn the long history, the tradition of the hymns. But he wanted to give the other church members something they could enjoy. So while it wasn't his preference, he was going to lay down his preference for the sake of others. He was able to worship not because his preference was being fulfilled, but because he saw someone else's preference being fulfilled. Because he saw someone else, the joy in someone else's heart, in their eyes as they worshipped the Lord Jesus Christ in a way that pleased them. There's much more to the issue than what I'm discussing in that matter. But don't you see the, the difference between the an ungodly wisdom addressed to that issue and a godly wisdom? One promotes division and disorder and the other promotes peace and righteousness and unity. But this wisdom comes only from above. If you spend enough time examining yourself and what kind of wisdom you have in yourself, you would find selfishness and pride. As you think about your family, as you think about how you speak to others, as you think about your own preferences and how even within your own heart you want to have things your way and how you think you're right. Of course we think we're right. Otherwise we wouldn't think the way that we do. But if you're like me, if you begin to examine your heart about what kind of wisdom you have, you might become very despairing and think there is no hope Because I am prideful. I am sinful. And this wisdom only comes from above. We do not have it naturally within ourselves. In ourselves, we are prone to selfishness, to clinging to what we want, to clinging to what we can gain, rather than laying our lives down for others. We cannot climb up to heaven and get this wisdom for ourselves. It comes only as a gift of free grace. It comes only in the person and work of Jesus Christ who laid down his life for us. It only comes as we are born again through faith in Jesus and as we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. This gift, the gift of Christ, and the gift of wisdom is given to those who humbly receive the Lord Jesus and ask him for wisdom. So let's ask him for wisdom now. Let's pray together. Dear Father, we pray that you would draw us to confession and repentance for what we find when we look within is pride and selfishness. 
what we find all too often is bitter envy and selfish ambition. We pray that you would cause us to repent of that, that we would see its demonic nature and reject it. And we pray that you would turn our eyes to Christ, who is the perfect example of humility and of selflessness and who is the Savior for all who will come to him. Draw our eyes to Christ that we might become like him. Give us wisdom, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.